The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we want to continue in our series in 1 Corinthians and uh, perhaps when I've ministered as long as Dr. Rogers I'll be able to give a four-point sermon that quickly, but not tonight. Um, I'm a little bit more prepared to say. Um, if you've been with us in 1 Corinthians, we're turning to chapter 8 tonight and if you have been here the last few weeks, you'll know we've worked through a number of questions that the Corinthians had for Paul, questions about marriage, singleness, divorce, um, living the life that God calls us to. But now as we turn to chapter 8, we're turning to uh, a new question that the Corinthians have uh, that Paul will endeavor to answer. We'll read uh, the whole uh, of this short chapter. So let's uh, read together 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word which is graciously given to us. We pray that your word would shape our hearts and minds to be more like you. And we pray that you would be glorified by us, your people, as we're shaped by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you think back over the chapters in 1 Corinthians that we've talked about, you'll remember that there have been a number of questions that the Corinthians have posed to Paul. We talked about marriage and singleness and divorce. We've talked about suing and the role of courts. We've talked about sexual immorality. We've talked about a number of questions. And so now, in chapter 8, Paul begins by acknowledging that he's turning to the next question in the list 
that the Corinthians had sent to him. He begins now concerning food offered to idols. Now, most of the questions that we've talked about so far are ones that we can, I think, readily identify with. Suing and taking people to court is certainly something we see all around us. It's something we are familiar with. Sexual immorality is something that fills our culture. Marriage, singleness, divorce are questions we think about, wrestle, identify with in so many ways. Food sacrifice to idols. It's not one that we relate to much. And, uh, I try to imagine what would it be like to have food sacrifice to idols be an issue that we can relate to. And maybe the, the, the image that first came to mind is many of you are probably used to either going to the grocery store or knowing people who go to the grocery store and have to examine the food labels on everything that they buy. Maybe they're turning the food label over to see if it's processed in a peanut factory or maybe they're turning the food label over to see if there's gluten. And so I'm, I'm picturing in my mind as I read this chapter, walking down the meat aisle in Giant and turning the meat package over and looking for the dreaded phrase, this meat may have been raised, processed, or packaged in idolatrous factories. Uh, or, or maybe it's got the yellow 100% idolatry free sticker on it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. But... Um, well, maybe meat sacrificed to idols and sorting through meat sacrificed to idols isn't a situation um, that, that we can identify with as a specific issue. The context of that specific issue is absolutely something that we can relate to. See, in Corinth, there were Christian brothers and sisters, fellow believers, who differed as to whether eating this meat was sinful or lawful. And the situation of differing with brothers and sisters in Christ over whether an action is sinful or lawful is absolutely a situation that, that we can identify with. It's one that, is, that fills our churches. I went through, uh, in my mind, uh, trying to think through a list of, of different issues and topics that I've heard brothers and sisters in Christ disagree over, and I'm sure you could come up with, with quite a good list. I thought through things like going trick-or-treating on Halloween, skipping church for a sports tournament, drinking alcohol, watching any R-rated movie, playing video games that include violence, listening to secular music, or even singing contemporary Christian music, going shopping on a Sunday afternoon. The list goes on, and I'm sure you could add many more to this list. And, and I don't give this, this list uh, to, to say they're all right or wrong, but just issues that I know there is disagreement on uh, between believers. And of course, there you have on the one hand brothers in Christ who will accuse, accuse the others of, of sinning. And on the other hand, you have brothers saying, well, no, you are just holding on to some extra biblical legalism and creating a further law here. And so the situation of brothers and sisters disagreeing over, over the lawfulness before God of an action is a situation I think we can readily identify with. And so Paul's comments here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, while they won't answer every question we may have about every issue, they do offer us some specific guidance on how we should approach one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we uh, may have questions about some of the actions that, uh, that we may be doing, maybe that we are uncomfortable with or, or uh, that they are uncomfortable with. So as we look at this, I think this is one of the more actually applicable and readily, readily uh, present chapters for so many of our interactions with fellow 
believers. And Paul outlines his thoughts very clearly in this chapter. And we want to start by looking at verses 1 through 3. Here in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, Paul starts by establishing the key principle that should guide us in these situations. Paul's key principle is all about understanding the role of knowledge and the role of love in our relationships with other believers. As you may remember from the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians were very excited about knowledge. They were very into their knowledge. And the, first, and the Corinthians uh, thought that the knowledge that they had uh, marked them out as more mature, more, more advanced believers uh, than others around them. And certainly, um, our knowledge of, of God's Word and of His doctrine is, is, a, is a key ingredient in growing in holiness. But for the Corinthians, the key mark of Christian maturity and the key factor in determining questions was knowledge. If we can just get the answer right, we've, we've solved all of the questions. And of course, of course, at one level, this, this does make sense. We, we can certainly sympathize with what the Corinthians are saying. We teach doctrine. We teach what the Bible says. We want to know the theology of God's Word. We want to encourage one another to grow in our knowledge of God and of His Word because that is important. And if we don't care about understanding what the Bible says and what the Bible says about specific issues, we don't care about knowing it better and growing in knowledge, we probably don't love God all that much. Love of God will lead us to love His Word. But, note what Paul says here. Paul says knowledge is not the most important aspect of a Christian, especially of a believer living in community with his fellow brothers and sisters. And it's not the key measure of the maturity of a Christian disciple. And Paul gives two reasons for this. First, you see that Paul argues that knowledge tends to puff up rather than build up. Knowledge tends us to give confidence in ourselves and confidence in our understanding of the truth. And I think you can see this. I remember walking onto campus as a college freshman, and I was ready to stake a flag for Reformed theology. And I remember someone came up to me once, and and they said, well, this whole thing about predestination, I don't don't understand it. I said, just go read Romans 9 and you'll understand it. It's so clear. And I remember just looking back, sort of this, this pride, um, and, and I can only imagine what arrogance was ascribed to me and how I approached issues of my understanding of doctrine and theology. Knowledge can puff up rather than build up, and that's Paul's first warning. Of course we should know the truth. Our confidence in our knowledge of the truth is also very likely at times to lead us to pride rather than to the growth of the body of Christ. So that's Paul's first warning. His second warning, though, is that all of our knowledge is still incomplete. Notice what he says in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. All of our knowledge is yet incomplete. As Paul will say in just a few chapters, he'll say, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Our knowledge and understanding of God is not perfected yet. And so staking a flag on certain confidences of knowledge in some areas, and of course you know what I'm hedging, because obviously there are truths we stake flags on, but some knowledge here being incomplete, um, we need to be careful of how much we rest on that um, in, in our relationships with one another as believers. I think one commentator put it well when he said, there is no point in priding oneself 
on what is inevitably partial and incomplete. Let me stand back from this. I think what we're hearing is Paul encouraging us that a hunger for the truth of God's Word ought to continually humble us. We have to be continually humbled in our pursuit of truth by how much more of the truth of God we have not yet grasped. All that we learn of God ought to remind us of how much more of God we do not yet know, not puff us up about the few things that we believe we have mastered. That's Paul's reminder here in the role of truth. So for the, for the Corinthians, the key question in a disagreement and, uh, like this is just, well, who is right? As long as we can just discern who is right, we've solved the whole question. And Paul is saying no. Just deciding who is right does not solve the entire question. If we want to know if someone is growing in their faith, the mark of maturity amongst Christian disciples, we want to know whether they are motivated by and motivated to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Are they focused on other believers? Are they thinking about, serving about, talking about, and even at their own expense, giving to and sacrificing for those that Jesus died to save? This love of one another in these areas of disagreement that Paul is talking about are key and are crucial for the preservation of God's people. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, Paul says. And Paul is brilliant to talk about this before even addressing the issue. He hasn't even talked about the specific issue yet. But he lays the principle first that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I want to come back to this at the end, but I want to look now at more specifically at this, at this issue. Paul says, look, it's not knowledge here that's going to solve the problem. It is, a, it is love, a willingness to give in and give up our desires for the sake of of the body of Christ. And that's the key principle to rest on. But to really understand this principle, we also need to know what the specific issue is. So meat sacrifice to idols. What's going on here? What's the context? If we travel back a few millennia into the first century AD, we would likely find that there are two scenarios that were causing distress between believers here. One, uh, in typical temple worship, if a cow or sheep or another animal was sacrificed in the temple, they wouldn't burn the whole animal. I'm not sure how much we've studied um, sacrifices, but they would only burn a small portion of the animal, usually the choicest portion of the animal to their gods, and the rest of the meat would be either eaten by the priests or given to the priests to sell uh, to, to provide money for their livelihood. And so if you were to go out into the meat market, chances were good that as you made your choice of a steak, that that steak was coming from an animal that had been sacrificed in one of the temples that the priests had then sold. So one scenario is when you go shopping for your meat, you may end up buying and eating meat that had just been on an altar to a pagan god. What do we do with that? And that's scenario number one. Some Christians believed that buying this meat on their daily trip to the market was no problem while others felt that it was tying them to idolatrous worship. But there was probably a more significant part of this question that verse 10 uh, brings out. You'll notice if you look at verse 10 that Paul talks about eating in an idol's temple. Eating in an idol's temple. See, uh, many of the social gatherings that took place in the ancient world actually took place in large dining rooms in the temples. 
You know, today, if you're going to you know, have a dinner together with a, with a large group, maybe you, maybe you go up to, to Oregon Dairy and get one of the side rooms um, and, and have, your, have your birthday party in a side room or you have a banquet room, a banquet hall, and you go and have a banquet there. Well, in the ancient world, um, there was no Oregon Dairy, um, but there were temples. And you would have your gathering in the banquet hall uh, of the temple. And you can imagine... Um, going into the temple to, to have your party. In fact, uh, we've, we've found some ancient dinner party invitations. If you're interested in archaeology, we have some ancient dinner party invitations. We, we have one that goes like this. Chiramon invites you to dine at the table of the god Serapis in his temple tomorrow evening. So here you are, a, a recently converted, now brother in Christ. You want to fellowship with your friends, and here your dinner party is held at the temple. And where do you think the meat for this party likely came from? That was likely the meat that had just been sacrificed in the temple. So, you can see as a Christian how this starts to become uncomfortable. All your life you've grown up worshiping the gods. And now here, in order to remain a part of this social gathering, you've got to go back to the temple and eat that meat again. And you can begin to see why this was a question that the Corinthians wrestled over. So, laying out his key principle to guide the Corinthians here, Paul now begins to apply it in verse 4 to this specific situation. And in verses 4 to 6, he talks about the knowledge that the Corinthians had. And he said, he first says, look, the knowledge that you have um, is, is right. And the Corinthians, um, from context here, we believe were, were okay, at least the ones writing this letter, believed it was okay to eat this meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul seems to agree with them. He says, look, um, we know that these gods are not real gods. They are just so-called gods. And there is only one true God and one true Lord. So these gods, these idols are nothing. So yes, in verse 9, he talks about the right that they have. And we'll go back to this language more today and then specifically next week. But he talks about this right that they have. Paul says, sure, if you know that these gods are nothing, then you know that it is okay to eat this steak, um, even if it was on this rock uh, in this temple before, before eating it. So in, in one sense, he's agreeing with the Corinthians. As you could might, maybe uh, you could summarize their, their position as saying, surely a false god doesn't ruin a good steak. And Paul says, you're right, you're right. Paul's willing to agree that Christians could reject the idol and still eat the meat. And he agrees that uh, they could um, presumably also accept Chiron's dinner invitation since they have, have this right. But, but can't you see the hesitation that some Christians would have here? They've gone to worship these idols for their entire lives. They thought of the meat sacrificed to the idol as part of pagan worship. How could they go back into that context? And you see the wrestling that these brothers in Christ would have. And so Paul moves on in verses 7 through 13 to say, yes, you have this knowledge that these gods are false gods. And so, yes, eating this meat would be okay for you. But how do you deal with this situation in a community, in a community of brothers and sisters, whereas he says in verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. Not all believers were confident that they could walk in that temple without sinning. For many, this was still something that they wrestled with. And so, Paul says, whether because of former association with idols or for some other reason, 
these brothers would go into the temple and eat this meat as if it was really offered to the idol. They would not be able to disassociate themselves from what was happening, and their consciences would be defiled. Paul's essentially saying, look, you who do this are setting an example that's either offending other believers or perhaps even encouraging them to do it as well, even though they're not comfortable with it. This is a very important principle for us. If a brother and sister in Christ is not comfortable doing something, we should not be pressuring them and pushing them to do it, even if we think it's theologically okay. As Paul's establishing the principle here that he talks about elsewhere, where to go against our conscience is a sin, regardless of the theological debate. So to, to encourage and to do something that would encourage others to participate in a sacrifice that they still associated with idolatry. See how, you see how strongly Paul puts this when he gets down into verse 11 and 12 when he says that you are encouraging your brother for whom Christ died to sin. And if you encourage your brother for whom Christ died to sin, then you and your brother are sinning against Christ and his body. This is a serious issue to encourage someone or do something that encouraged another to go against their conscience and sin against their God. He uses the term a stumbling block. You have become a stumbling block for the people of God. You know what a stumbling block is, right? I recently discovered I have several children who like to play a game where I'll walk around and pretend to trip on something on the floor. And I'll sprawl out onto the floor and they think it's hilarious. But sometimes, uh, sometimes this game goes badly because sometimes I don't have to pretend. And it's usually when my son leaves the tiniest blocks out, the Legos, the little Lego pieces sprawled on the floor. If you step on those, you know what I'm talking about. Actually, on one of our youth trips, we were playing uh, uh, in the car on the way. We were doing uh, questions, would you rather, and lay out two scenarios. Would you rather this or this? And the scenario that we spent the most time on was, would you rather walk barefoot over a bed of hot coals or a floor strewn with Legos? And the uh, bed of hot coals was the more frequent choice. Uh, You know what happens. You step on something and down you go. That's the picture Paul wants us to see here. When you are encouraging a brother or sister in Christ to go against their conscience and to do something that they, they are not comfortable doing, that they feel pulls them from their God. When you encourage them to do that, you are strewing Legos in front of them and watching brothers and sisters in Christ hit the floor. The community of God's people is stumbling and falling because we are not considering our brothers and sisters. That's the picture here. My concern, Paul says, my concern for my brother is the crux of the issue, not my doctrinal knowledge of whether this is right or wrong. My concern, my love for those whom Christ loved is the key question, not my ability to parse out this verb or that verb and know that I'm doctrinally correct. And Paul, Paul breaks this down, I think, in very understandable terms. He says, look, how do we know this is the case? Because food doesn't actually matter. If I eat this food or don't eat this food, I'm no worse off or better off before God. My standing before God isn't dependent upon what I eat for breakfast. Food doesn't matter. But breaking the unity of Christ's body? 
causing a brother or sister to sin before the God who died for them, that matters. That matters. I think when you, when you juxtapose that, my choice off the menu for lunch versus the obedience or sin of a fellow brother or sister in Christ, it's become so clear that we should readily give in what we eat if that becomes necessary to preserve our brothers. I, I would be the first one to say I, I love my meat. I love a good cheeseburger, especially one from Five Guys. But we can agree with Paul in verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again for the sake of my brother. That's the seriousness of the issue. We are called to give up whatever immaterial thing like food we may give up if it is to the benefit of our brother in Christ. I think this, this lays out Paul's logic. He gives us the principle. He acknowledges the Corinthians' rightness of their thinking, but then counters that by saying, even though you're right theologically, you should act differently because of love for your brother. But I want to take a few minutes here at the end to, to think through some of this, particularly as we try to apply this situation to other situations we may face. I feel pretty confident after reading this chapter that if meat sacrificed to an idol was an issue, I would know how to respond. But how does this help me as I'm discussing one of the other issues that I may differ with other believers? The two points that I want to discuss. First, we should note that Paul here is talking about principles that theologians also often refer to as issues of Christian liberty. Christian liberty. What are we talking about there? We're talking about issues which it would be okay, theologically, for, for believers to participate in if their consciences allow them to do so. We cannot apply the principle of knowledge puffs up but love builds up to any issue theologically, such as, say, the inerrancy of Scripture. We don't say, well, you know, the Bible is inerrant, but knowledge puffs up, so if my brother doesn't like the inerrancy of Scripture, we'll just kind of sweep that to the side and say, sure, I'm going to love my brother, and we won't talk too much about the inerrancy of Scripture. It doesn't apply to that. And we're not talking about every issue theologically. We're not talking about whether we can uh, live with a boyfriend or a girlfriend before marriage. We're not talking about issues where Scripture speaks clearly to an issue of sin. Now, the first thing we need to know as we're applying this is that these principles do not apply to every single area that people who claim to be Christians disagree on. Because people who claim to be Christians disagree on even fundamental points of doctrine that are at the core of our faith. And so the issues, the issues that these principles would apply to would be the, those issues that, yes, it would be okay for Christians to participate in this if their consciences are okay. There are other believers whose consciences are not clear. And in situations like that, we ought to apply the principles of this chapter. So that's the, that's the first mark of how do we know where to apply this? How do we, how do we approach this or apply this to other scenarios? The second mark or question that we can ask uh, about this is where is our heart? Where is our heart? 
Many times, when we approach an issue, as I'm, as I'm trying to think through an issue and think, well, what does Scripture say about this? There's a big difference between when I approach Scripture with, I don't know what Scripture says, and I legitimately want to find out. And when I approach Scripture with, boy, I really want to do this, so let me see if I can find a way that Scripture allows me to do this. You know the difference of approach there, right? How do we approach Scripture? When we read Scripture, are our hearts humbled before the authority of the Word of God? I was struck talking with someone recently, and we were talking about uh, issues uh, related to the, the debate surrounding gay marriage, and it was such a wise statement that uh, this lady made. She said, remember that the real issue starts with the authority of Scripture. Will we submit every desire we have to the authority of Scripture? Is that the attitude of our hearts when we approach issues and seek to know where Scripture is pointing us? Is our heart humbled before the authority of God, and are we saying, Lord, give me clarity to know what your word is saying, and I will follow? I can certainly, and I would certainly encourage you as you think through questions to, to seek counsel from others as well. I can think of some times where I was thinking through Scripture, and, and I think my heart was in the right place, but it would, it would be so wise for me if I would have gone to several other people and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Do you, do you agree? Or is my own preference or my own desire sneaking in here? So the first, as we, as we seek to think through these issues, you know, is this issue a matter of Christian liberty or is this a core doctrinal issue? First, what does Scripture say? Second, where is our heart? Is our heart humbled before Scripture, ready and willing to submit to Scripture? And the last, the last point is really the point of context. What is, the, what is the context here, and how is our conscience interacting with the context? I think uh, maybe the clearest way to talk about this is this very issue of meat sacrifice to idols. Here, Paul says, even though you know it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, you shouldn't for the sake of your brother. But interestingly, in two chapters, in chapter 10, Paul's going to tell the first Corinthians there not to eat pagan sacrifices. Well, what's going on? How can it be okay to eat it here and not to eat pagan sacrifices there? Well, as almost all the commentators that I read on this issue said, um, Paul's not contradicting himself. In chapter 10, he's talking about Christians participating in pagan festivals. So here, can we eat a steak that happened to find its way to an altar? Sure. There's no context of pagan idolatry there. Could we even have a dinner party in a back room that happens to be attached to a temple? Paul seems to be okay with that. Can we participate in in idolatrous festivals? Can we participate in meals to the worship of a god? No. So context, the context is also important. And I think this is extremely helpful um, I thought about this, and, and maybe, maybe any time I, I pick an issue, I'm, I'm running a risk, but one of the, the scenarios that I was thinking about talking with some folks recently was the difference between uh, a couple having a glass of wine in their home in an evening and uh, a Christian brother going to a frat party and drinking a few beers at a frat party. There is a difference in how that's perceived and how that plays out. Context is also important in how we play this out. So three questions to ask ourselves as we're saying, is this an area of Christian liberty or is this something that Scripture speaks to specifically? What do the Scriptures say? Is our heart humbled before God's Word? 
and what's the context. The second thing I just want to note, though, as we end, is that Paul's clear call is that even if we firmly believe that we are doctrinally correct and an action is okay, if a fellow brother and sister in Christ are either offended by this, if it breaks fellowship between that brother and sister, or if it encourages them to sin, we ought to be ready to sacrifice our right, if you will, for our brother and sister in Christ. Sometimes that might mean sacrificing it entirely. Other times it may mean a creative solution. I was thinking just uh, two years ago, we were talking about uh, pumpkins to my kids. My kids had never opened a pumpkin up to eat the pumpkin seeds. And so all, all late summer, we were talking to them about how we were going to cut a pumpkin open and they were going to roast the pumpkin seeds. And, and when they did that, they could also carve a, a picture or something on the pumpkin or, or a face or something if they wanted to do that. And about a week before October hit, I happened to be talking to a neighbor who lived in an apartment a couple doors down. And this neighbor and his family had come from Haiti just a couple of years earlier. And if you know much about the cultural context of Haiti, you'll know that witchcraft is alive and well and widespread throughout Haiti. And so this brother just happened to mention to me, isn't it terrible that Christians carve pumpkins? And he said, isn't it terrible that you would put a face on a pumpkin because that is part of witchcraft? And I'm thinking, I never knew. I never, I never thought about a face on a pumpkin being witchcraft. But um, as my wife and I were talking about it, we decided to carve a face of a pumpkin and put it out on our front porch as we planned to do was not something we should do for the sake of this brother. And we did, in that case, allow our, our children to carve the pumpkin, but we didn't put it outside and we threw it away shortly. Sometimes there may be a creative solution. Maybe sometimes you have to give it up. Um, I remember when Kate and I were planning our wedding, we had a particular song that we wanted to be part of the wedding. But at the time, Kate's family was attending a church where many were opposed to any Christian song that had drums as a part of the song. And the song had drums in it. And so we talked with her parents and decided it would be better to leave the song out. This is a pretty minor example, not a big sacrifice. You might have to sacrifice more. But the point is, we should be ready to sacrifice for the sake of the unity for the love of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might not encourage them towards sin. And that's Paul's key principle. It takes us right back to where we started. Paul's key principle, knowledge and whether something is right, is not the most important thing when deciding these issues of Christian liberty. The key question for us as the community of God's people is this. Will we love our brothers? Will we love those for whom Christ died? Will we love the growing holiness and the sanctification of God's church? Is that our passion as it is Christ's passion? For those known by God, as Paul says, for those known by God who love their God, these will be but small sacrifices as they expand the glory of our Savior and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, there are many issues that we wrestle over at times. Should, should we do this? Is this glorifying to you? I pray for hearts eager to submit to your word. I pray for wisdom to act for your glory and for the love of those around us. And I pray for an eagerness, an eagerness and a passion for the, for the growing purity and holiness of your church that is ready and willing to sacrifice something that we might call a right if it would bless 
and preserve and protect God's church. Would you work that in us, Lord? Would you give us wisdom? And in doing so, would you more and more glorify and magnify your name in your church? We pray this through Christ's name. Amen.